Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What's up? This is Unpaid Bill from Quest Love Supreme. On this week's classic, we revisit May 30th, 2018, interview with journalist and author Ronan Farrow. He dropped by to talk about his first book, War on Peace. The chat led to talking about family, most death, and Ronan's pursuit of the truth. Episode 86. Enjoy. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. 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 I am for real. Yeah. I am so down. Yeah. Ronan Farrell. Yeah. Expose these clowns. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema Roll Call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. I can't play the word Litzel. Yeah. I never had a bar mitzvah. Yeah. Congrats on that poo Litzel. Oh, 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 yeah. Suprema. <laughs> Suprema Roll Call. Suprema. Yes. Suprema Roll Call. My name is Sugar. Yeah. When I heard Pharaoh. Yeah. I was like, oh, vey. Yeah. Not again. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. I'm unpaid bill. Yeah. And life is hard. Yeah. When you live inside. Yeah. House of cards. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. So it's Laiem. Yeah. And Ronan Farrow. Yeah. Everything he says. Yeah. Yeah, I follow. Yep, me too. Yep, yep, yep. Suprema. Just, you know, roll with it. Don't matter. Just me too. Suprema. Suprema roll call. I'm Ronan yeah. Farrow, yeah. I'm here to stay, yeah. I cannot freestyle, yeah. but I got other redeeming qualities, yeah. yeah, yeah. Suprema, <laughs> Suprema roll call. Where's Eric Suprema? Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema, 
crooning shit. I, that, yeah, was yeah. for, that was amazing. <laughs> for crooning. Guys, uh, I crooning think we definitely need another take, but there's promising stuff there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, no. No, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. We, we are a one <laughs> bar mitzvah of Hulitza. I love well played, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Yo, how long did it take you to figure out words that rhyme with pool? I was outside and I, I saw the, I, I had a new bar mitzvah and then <laughs> I saw the word lit outside. I was like, I can't. Uh, you can do like, like Pulitzer Soul Sister. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that works as well. If, See, if you, you were all the revelation comes after roll call. Before roll oh, call, there is nothing we can think of that, you know, that rhymes <sighs> with the word that we intended. It to. You do that every time? That's exhausting. Every, that's every like, time. That's like Everybody. a hazing ritual. And you're, 100%. What, what, what episode is this? Like, this is like 80 something. Um, congrats yeah. on your 80 something episode, guys. Thank you. That means each. Each freaking uh, roll call has been uh, somewhat uh, customized. I have all mine saved. You're a lie. I swear to God. Throw my oh, phone. yours. Okay. Like but it's you're also be mostly one off day. topic. Because <laughs> I like to be as this, off topic this, as possible. Wait, topic, this is Bill. weird. Because this, well, this is the one, yours is always political, yeah. no matter what. Like, even if we have like. 100%. That's true. Like, you know, the, the food episode, right. you'll talk about what happened right. in the news that week. So That's you're true. like our political conscience. A little bit. But not really. Is he our Professor Griff? I was going to try to do a non-political one this week because it's political to fuck with you all, but I didn't. Yeah, I was like, you better stick to something. Nah, Rona here. But Zara's here. By the way, special guest Zara Zolman here today. Just say the word hi. Okay. <laughs> she, she's very shy. Yes, my, we, my goal is to get her to open up. Yeah, we, it's like therapy. We but are literally, yeah. We, in, in place of boss Bill, uh, Zara, one of my seven managers. Is, is here. Ooh, maybe we can get into it later. Ooh, no, because yeah. it's not about me. Okay. Right now, yeah. our special guest. You're right. You know, I, I will say probably one of the one of the one of the hardest things to to do. Uh I, I think in terms of, of David and Goliath is taking a stand and calling people out. Yeah. Whistleblower. Yeah. Sticking to the truth, especially when uh Terms like fake news gets thrown around a lot, and mm-hmm. you know there are a certain few that still don't know who to believe. You know, the eighty-five percent, I guess. Anyway, um, this this man has, in in my opinion, uh, he's leading the charge, and he he's a mighty David to the world's Goliath. His new book just got released, War and Peace. Thank you. I want to talk about that. Yeah, pl- Welcome, Ronan the Farrell. hell out of that, guys. Yes. <laughs> yes. Welcome, Ronan yes. Farrell. <laughs> Thank you. Time, Thank you. Time's, it means a lot to hear uh, that from you, influential. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, how cool I is saw, that? I saw your speech last night. That was really incredible how you, you bigged up your mom for, you know. Yeah. I, you know, look, I brought with me, actually, um, uh, uh, one of the first women who went on the record in the these stories I wrote about Harvey Weinstein. And... You know, there's a reason for that. I really, I was there because of her. And I feel like we have all benefited so much from the example of how brave these women were. And you're right, my mom was there too. And she is a super brave woman who has gotten a lot of flack for standing up for her daughter mm-hmm. and for women's rights. And uh, I owe a lot to her. Yeah. I got to say, even like news news of you uh, writing the, the New Yorker piece and and. Your work before, of course, we at one point worked in the same building at at Thirty Rock, what I call Thirty Rock University. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that you graduated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you kicked out, graduated. You know, <laughs> well, we'll you talk know, about that so, later. Yeah, uh, you know, but um, you were you definitely had a cooler lair in Thirty Rock than I did. 
Yeah, but you guys were the know-it-alls, man. And like, I, you know, <laughs> I was always a big fan of of the third floor. All the all the cats at MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. There's some great reporters there. Um, but I I'll say that um, even though I believe maybe the first time I met you, I I recall. Did you guys ever attend a show with most? Uh, I know at the time when he was doing uh, Be Kind Rewind. Yeah. Wow. That is a piece of obscure IMDb trivia. Uh, <laughs> my mom co-starred with Mos in right. this Michelle Gondry movie. She sure did. Right. Yeah. yeah and she loved Mos. She was like, this guy is the salt of the earth. He, he, she thought he was so sweet. He was so supportive. I thought of her at on one set. point that you guys, that was going to be like the, the adoption thing. Like. Most was just going to be like he was going to the, the latest addition to the Pharaoh family. Exactly, <laughs> I, I could have sworn that. that I saw. Even I don't know if it's you or your siblings at 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 one of his shows that I happen to be at. Totally possible. Okay. I mean, I'm a big fan of his. Okay, so but I'm I'll say that my my true introduction introduction to you was your your Twitter feed, which was super fearless. At first, I didn't. I didn't even know you were journalists. I just thought, "Yo, your singers <laughs> are." <laughs> I'm glad you like them. They have gotten me in trouble. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> how how did the the your Father's Day tweet? I don't know if this is the white elephant in the room, whatever. But your Father's Day tweet was rather interesting. I, I had some spicy tweets in my day. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, you know how did how did you? deal with it because usually i get a lot of clap back from you know yeah my inner circle yeah i mean uh, you know uh, but you just always has that always been you like i'm gonna call it out if i see bullshit i'm gonna call it out for sure for sure i i think when you're calling out bullshit through careful investigative reporting you do have to then be careful about like being glib on social media um so it's a delicate balance you know it depends on the topic so you can't be yeah, you're you're not. I think you know. While I'm in the middle of such sensitive stuff, and I'm so under fire from some pretty nasty people that I've exposed. You can't um, be jokey. Uh, you know, I, I still get a little in edgewise, especially but. in the last you know few. I want to say weeks. Yeah, you, you during know, this period, time, these things. It's like okay, Ronan's your Twitter might go more PG now. It's right? a little more PG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I also think you know Twitter has changed. Like our a cultural lot. moment has changed. There was a. a period where like I'd go on with you know Jimmy and he'd like read his favorite tweets of mine and I don't think we do that anymore like the novelty of Twitter wore off and it's now more for me anyway like a Rolodex of fellow reporters rather than like a joke medium oh yeah it's more like it's like the morning papers now it's like the morning paper yeah yeah right it's it's more of just a news aggregator for me hashtag is a thread you know it's a thread it's a thread (laughs) so nothing's funny anymore yeah, nothing's fine. Well, you guys are still funny. That, that works. So just as a young person, were when did you realize that this is bullshit and I have to stand up for something? Or were you were you the tattletale of your siblings? Like what? what <laughs> I was not a snitch, Amir. Because uh... it's weird. Just from where I came from, like I was raised. Okay. One time, I used to be the the cousin that told, "Ooh, the cookie jar." Real, I believe. Right, but I I was raised like you. My uncle would punish the guilty party, and then punish the snitcher. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. Hell it's yeah. like, yeah. what did I do? He's like, yeah. "You're supposed to stick together. You're, you're to not stick supposed together. to." Stick. Yeah. Which is like that's that's kind of weird. Weird. So we, 
at a young age, I'll say that at least culturally, black people were, were slow to call things out. And then maybe by their teens, then it's like the tell it like it is thing. Because then you just realize that this is bullshit and I got to stand up. So, I mean, at what point were, did you feel like, or my own to, I got to... I was always raised with a really strong spirit of public service and justice. And I think a lot of that flows from my mom being like a recovering Catholic schoolgirl <laughs> who, you know, still really uh, was inculcated with that kind of save the world attitude. And, and I think, you know, speaking the truth and cutting through bullshit, um, even when it means putting a lot on the line, is a big part of that. But what's interesting when you talk about snitching is... You know, my day job as an investigative reporter requires both a lot of telling of hard truths and also a lot of keeping of secrets, right? Because you're dealing with all of these anonymous sources. sources. Yeah, and, um, you know, even when people go on the record, you know, you have to be very careful about parsing out the parts they want to say, the parts they don't want to say. And and one of the most important things I do is respecting people's privacy. Well, let let me make clear. Snitching is, at least culturally for us, snitching is like when you're part of an operation and then you That's get caught yeah and then you rat everyone else out no you, right. you're cool because boss bill's not here oh, <laughs> everyone leave your ringers attack. on right. and i want you guys to chew to on the microphone oh, just, <laughs> we're all gonna really? be taking calls yeah, during this podcast <laughs> just take some calls and you know chew chew on the microphone yes sound effects all this stuff but so i i would not necessarily say i mean keeping a secret is necessary in your line of business and I feel that's not. You walking back? <laughs> no, I, I, I never. I mean, I, no, I, I like the introduction point you to made. Where, yeah, no, yeah. Interesting point. That's why I was super interesting. I point. wanted you to go back to what you said about him and your brothers and sisters, because when you came in here, you were already talking about your brothers and sisters. And how many do you have? And I am where one we're... of 14. Okay. Wow. It's a lot. And, and your where... last name is not Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> right. And where are you in the scheme of the 14? There are four younger than me. Uh, ten of my siblings are adopted, and most of them have, uh, you know, really traumatic, difficult backgrounds of various kinds. You know, adopted from terrible situations of poverty and abuse. Um, you know, many of them adopted older, at a point where basically they would not have found a home otherwise. And you know, those are the people I love most, and I grew up with, and it really gave me this incredible sense of perspective. It's hard to like sob into your soup about anything when you have so many of the world's challenges right at your doorstep. So from the gate, being one of 14, like you're automatically taught community service and, and that sort of, I mean, it wasn't a silver spoon situation and you decided. Cause yeah, there's some I mean, people that like, they grow up privileged sure. and rich and then they realize like, yo, this is, Bullshit and I got it. And you know, I'd never like complain of hardship in that respect because Lord knows I've reported on and seen plenty of real hardship. Um, and I, I didn't have that. But, uh, you know, I was raised by a single mom who was at that point, you know, not working all the time. And um, it was very clear that we all had to strike out and make a living as uh, early as possible. And, right. um, you know, not everyone could go to private school, it was, it was merit based. And, um, you know, we were really fortunate. I was supported through my whole childhood, but it wasn't opulent. And, you know, the flip side was that there were all these very real traumas and um, often really just physical challenges that I saw my siblings go through. So I was I was exposed to that from an early age. Wait, you said something interesting. You said pr- going to private school was merit based. 
Well, you know, a lot of my siblings had the benefit of like wonderful public schools in our in our towns um, that we grew up in in, in Connecticut. Uh, we moved around a little bit. It was New York, Connecticut. You were born in New York. I was born in New York, and then okay. I spent my teens in um, Connecticut. And it was kind of I think it was an individual decision for each person. Like, okay, what are they going to benefit from most? You know, how good is the local school? Uh, you know, what makes sense? Are they really going to get a lot out of some kind of a specialized program? You know, whether they either, you know, need more attentive education because they've got special needs or because they're excelling in a particular way and that needs to be tended to. That's not, a lot of work for your mom. Like that unbelievable is... Unbelievable work. <laughs> she was a, an incredible mom and I saw her shoulder this huge burden all by herself. Did you get, do any of you guys have kids? Yeah, I got the... Uh... Two boys, seventeen and twelve. So you know and what a handful. <laughs> They're my kids. It's a lot. It's a lot, and I can't imagine doing that all alone. You know, while making a living um, with so many kids, it's a lot to bite off. I definitely grew up knowing that I didn't want to adopt ten kids, but I also grew up really admiring the hell out of it. Is it? Yeah. How is it fighting for your own space and your own voice and your? I would assume that you had to be diplomatic and, you know, the biggest vote wins and we get to watch this channel and, you know. Yeah, a lot of early negotiating skills. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but that's probably true. I mean, a lot of fighting over food. You know, we were like, we were a dark meat family when it came to chicken and the dark meat was always gone. You know, yes. just yes. never yes. enough drumsticks yes. to go around. Yo, son, your last name is Johnson. <laughs> no, listen, we just had a whole conversation about good hair and whatnot. And it's funny because that was my next question to you, like breaking down the diversity of your brothers and sisters. Yeah. Because that provided such a different understanding for you, you know, especially as a white totally man. Totally different understanding. I mean, look, I'm still a white guy and I would not claim to understand what it's like to grow up as a black woman in our society. Um, but I, I can claim to understand what it's like to grow up, uh, you know, with a bedroom next to the bedroom of a of a black young woman. And um, uh, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a whole. I mean, I want to be careful because I, I was telling you before, like I have, um, you know, you have black, black siblings. Yeah, I, didn't know, I, I have did black not siblings, know this. Yeah. OK, I have okay. black siblings. I have Asian siblings. We were we were real like United Colors of Benetton. And... <laughs> Baker clan. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I know, you know, I have, uh, you know, there are black women in my life who are very disapproving of the the Chris Rock documentary yeah. that you just mentioned, the, oh, the good, good hair. hair. That's yeah. what, yeah, oh, okay. what we're talking about. I wasn't going to put you on, but yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting conversation. Really? It is an interesting yeah. conversation yeah. that people have about that. And it's not really for me to say, you know, how sensitive he was or not, because I'm not in that demographic. But but uh, certainly I, I got a, a taste of the, the hair traumas of, <laughs> honestly, the childhood of just about any girl of any color, because... As I was telling you earlier, my Asian Asian siblings were like getting perms and wanting curly hair. And, you know, my black sister was like, you know, going through the whole rigmarole of like straighteners, relaxers and, you know, going out in the rain and it's all ruined. (laughs) (laughs) So God bless anyone who finds equilibrium on their hair, whatever color (laughs) it may be. Wait, tell me about you. So you had a problem with good hair? No, I I, I didn't have a problem. Not me. But I saw the point of it. I saw the point in the problem because I was saying at the end of the day, Chris Rock is a, a man. And so it was from a perspective of men and a lot of things were left out. That's what we were talking about. Oh, okay. Now yeah, I watch again and see. I mean, what... white people I know loved that documentary. I'm like, of course, because oh, they knew I feel nothing. so full of insight now. Yeah, right. and, and I was kind of surprised then. You know, you talk to uh, black women about it, and it's a little more split down the middle. Where mm-hmm. like you found things to respect in it, and I mean, I certainly enjoyed it. And I just think it was that it well was done and his intentions in doing it when it comes yeah, to his I daughters. Think that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did not know that. 
Okay. Where where did you go to high school? Did you all go to the same high school? Or, well, you're all not the same age. So, so I, I yeah, I mean, there's a huge age span. I actually did not go to high school. But you went to college at like 16, didn't 11. you? 11. Oh. Wait. Deal, oh. deal with it. Wait, time out. Because you graduated at like, you graduated college at 15, right? Yeah. Oh, my Whoa, bad. time out. <laughs> and you're I'm you do now. this about me, Amir. I <laughs> did not know this about you. And Wait, time out. Explain your schooling. Uh, I and how can I be down? Oh, like there's a DeLorean. <laughs> it's that's too late. I think I'm it's over. Yeah, we missed that. <laughs> we missed the Ronan Farrell plan. <laughs> Look, I don't know if it's a good idea, but it's what happened. I was super nerdy and was bored in school, and uh, I was lucky enough to uh, get like a you know a brochure for this Johns Hopkins program where you can take college <laughs> courses as a kid. You said Johns Hopkins like it's nothing. <laughs> yeah, they they have this thing. it's so embarrassing. It's called the the Center for Talented Youth. I'm so sorry guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> drop, it, drop it. Own just it. Just own it. it. Just own it. Yes. Yeah. So so anyway, I and these fellow nerds would get together and like take college courses in the summers and and How old were you then? This would have been like, you know, from age nine or 10 on. So so the the way you get into that summer camp is you take the SAT. And so I took the SAT and I got a score where people were like, oh, okay, you should just go to college. So I just, I did. Wow. And this is at nine years old? So the SAT, you know, I took it a couple of times in that period. To, ordering. I don't understand. So you had to retake it to get it. This is more detail than you did. But anyway, I got a, I got a, like a, a baller SAT score. And I kind like of went a, to college. Seven, six, I, did, I got a perfect SAT score. <laughs> oh, shit. No one is ever going to want to be my friend. No, I've worked dude. I'm not going to want to be your friend. No, no, no. Okay, this, this is what I'm You will be you. my only friends after yes, this. Yes, we will. No, but peep it. Peep it. All right. So I, I, maybe I don't know if I told the story of my birth doctor or not, but like he was trying to get my parents to think. You know, I was born in the early 70s and there was like a new way of thinking and all that stuff. And he was trying to get my parents to kind of go out of their their uh, boundary comfort zone okay. when it came to raising me. Now, they geared to more, more towards entertainment and whatnot. So he told them, like, you know, when he wants to write on the walls, let him write on the walls. Oh, and let him that shit. Play, Out of my right, house. Right. Mm-hmm. Anything nope. in a black, anything in a plastic covered yeah, house. Yeah, let, let him jump on the good sofa and yeah right uh, all i violated all this stuff but that's how i became a drummer okay after a while it was like okay he's destroying too much (laughs) furniture what do we do get him something to beat get him him a drum set and then that's like around two but he definitely said like make sure before the age of five you let him just you know he's going to be curious about a lot of things like of course if it's a fork to the socket, stop yeah, that. Yeah, don't do that. But let him draw on the walls. Let him play in his food. Let so him... would you raise any kids you have that way? Hell no. <laughs> you don't <laughs> no want to lose those couches. Right, right. But no you way. see, I I feel because of of I've seen the result and I have cousins that were or under a, a strict like this restrictive uh lifestyle. Hmm. And I've seen the results of of being too restrictive, what that does once they're teenagers and you rebel against. Like, TV was taken away from me in my formative years. Hmm. But as a result, as an adult, like, I'm totally addicted to TV. You know what I mean? So it's sort of... 
I actually had the same evolution on video games where oh, we were wow. we were You're a game? no video game household and then I became like a real nerdy gamer as a result. What do you game? What's your what's your joints? Oh man, I've got Are you uh, Xbox or PS4? PS4. Or I'm a PS4 yes, guy. Yeah. Post college, I'm sure. Uh yeah, but kind of, you know, I was so you make up for lost time. I was so subversive that, you know, I was the kind of kid where when I was told you you can't get a Nintendo, I was like here are all my arguments on why this is an important art form. <laughs> and yes. writers of my generation are going to be going into video games and telling important horizon-expanding stories. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Hey. So you bullshitted. Uh, I, yeah, but also there was some truth to that. And then I would like, uh, uh, you know, rig up emulators on my computer to get the Super Nintendo games uh, and the N64 okay. games. No, no like, you know, just terribly, like, hacked together versions I'd download but uh, so I could play them. Um... I'm not advocating piracy and emulation here. Yes, I'm just saying it was a fake. I was like, I, I figured you just built your own video game. <laughs> like, so, what do you game now? What's your uh, game uh, on so, PS4? So, yeah, I have a PS4. I'm a, I'm a. I grew up on partly as a consequence of that ban on consoles, computer games, okay. which were allowed, yeah. which are a little more cerebral. Like, yeah. do you remember like Mist, Mist from yep. the nineties? Mist. Mist is my jam. And there's actually now that, um, similar to some of the transitions in the music industry, there's much more of an indie scene in gaming right now yeah. because you publishers have declined have you played that? that inside for ps4 inside is a beautiful work yeah, of art that's a crazy it's game. like scandinavian game i think right yeah, yeah. maybe danish mm -hmm. and uh it's like black and white yep. and, has and you're very evocative and yeah yeah, Man, we got to go deeper on this. We're, we're losing the rest of the no, crowd. No, no. <laughs> this is like watching a tennis game. And we're and learning actually, about Fonte. I'm like, what? We, yeah. This is a side of him that I've exposed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we, we're, we're very much a rabbit hole show. So. Yeah, so I love the kind of the lineage of those mist-type adventure games and other kind of artistic games that are a little mysterious and make you think. And Flower, a lot of those played Flower? Love Flower, love yeah. Journey. Um, that I haven't whole, played Journey Journey's yet. great. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what 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 There's a game for games? PS4 called Soma, which you should 100% play, like best writing, best story I've okay. seen in a Soma, game. Soma, S-O-M-A? Yep. So these uh, are like more. a choose your adventure games? Nah, like this Zelda is like, or? Inside is, uh, is just a game where you're a kid uh -huh. And it just drops you in this world, and you just—it's a side scroller game. So, like you—you like you can die. So yeah, it's like Mario. Okay. And you can just die in so many different ways, and it's these puzzles you have to figure out. And but it's as sort of it's this very on, evocative, beautiful backdrop of like a kind of an Orwellian, like nineteen eighty four repressive like, uh, society. So it's it, much more about like the experience than the puzzles than the or the jumping. Puzzles yeah. Are, yeah. And yeah. then Flower is like if PM Dawn designed a game. <laughs> Say what? <laughs> flower is like you where you are a petal of a flower. It's 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 amazing high. Dude, it's you're a petal of a flower and you play as the wind. So you have to direct the petal to go through this garden to pick up more flowers and they the music I I want to I, I don't think right you Yo, I didn't, but a couple of my homies Catch did. Catch it. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's a beautiful game, and like on weed, it's even better. <laughs> I love that you're this gentle soul. You love these, like, these gentle stoner games. I mean, but I play Doom, too, though, so I like Doom. Oh, yeah. The new you know, Doom is great. Doom is amazing. Really well done. And uh, Last of Us. Yeah, love The Last that's, of Us. That's like a screenplay. For sure. Right? I hear the new God of War is excellent. I got it. I purposely, I have it downloaded. I haven't started it yet because I got work to do, and I know once I start you it, it's over. You and me both. Yeah. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. 
Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. First of all, hats off for Afropix. Off to you for <laughs> your uh, for your 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 New Yorker piece. Thank you. What I mean the the what gave you the nerve or the gall or, or the audacity to even say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go after it because I would have figured that every editor or every boss of yours would have tried to shut you down. Yeah. Maybe the House guilt of, of the democratic yeah. or the guilt of the democratic party, you know, being as he was one of the biggest supporters or whatever, like mm-hmm. that could have just like a lot of powerful forces trying to shut it down. Yeah, and how did you manage to bob and weave your way out of that to something that actually not only stuck but worked? 
I'm just so relieved and so grateful because of all those obstacles. You know, the the most important answer is that these women who came forward did this incredibly brave and difficult thing. I mean, I worked with them for months and we had so many tough conversations about the pros and the cons and the threats to their career and the threats to their physical safety. And, you know, as you know, one of the articles I wrote exposed this whole system of hiring like combat ready yeah, former Mossad, Mossad agents. agents. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like there's real cloak and dagger stuff going on here. And from the beginning, uh, you know, the women involved in the story were warning me of that. And I knew that every single person who had told their story did it because they thought it could help protect the next woman to come along. And because they had done this incredibly difficult thing, I just wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I had allowed it to be shut down or if I had given up. The other aspect of it is by the time I got to the decision point of like, okay, my life is falling apart. I got no more career, like nothing. Like this is, maybe I you know, swung too wide on this. I, I, I couldn't go back because I really had, like I gambled everything, you know? I'd spent a year of my life and um, all the opportunities I thought I had and was pursuing had gone away. And um, did you the only f- choice I had was to stick with it. Did you feel like your exit at MSNBC was like, was that the end of the world? Like when you walked out of that building with your box or I don't know. I can always tell when someone leaves MSNBC because of a certain white box that they carry outside of. And it's never a happy look on their face when they're carrying I mean, leaving box. anywhere where you thought you were building a future is is incredibly hard. Um, I was at the time not at MSNBC. I was on the Today Show. Uh, but, you know, sorry, still just in consider building. that one big Yeah, ass. no, it's all, it's all one news organization. You're right, right to consider it the same. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work the investigative unit did on a bunch of stories I worked on there. Um, and yeah, you know, look, things, things changed as I was working on this story. So at the time of the Today Show, did you hear any rumblings of what was happening with Lauer at the time? I am going to have to be careful what I say in this conversation about that. Uh, I, you too. How about that? (laughs) You're you're a, you're a tough interviewer. Look, I, I do think that it's, you don't know, but you are. The, the, I thought I was asking soft questions like shit in the past. Look, I I think there's a lot of valid questions out there about how all these things connect together. And, you know, I got to make sure that um, that story is told in the right way at the right time. That's what I was going to ask you because you chose. Well, obviously, this book must have been in the works before. It was. Yeah. Okay, because there must be something in process to, to tell the story of your process in doing this article. Yeah, I I think further down the line, people are right to hammer me with questions about this, and and I will make sure. So you have not officially talked about. No, you're like okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I just assumed that once the deed was done, and you know, that it was like common knowledge. No, look, I mean, they. I will say broadly, uh, the story behind stories like this can be important because when something this important and this dangerous stays quiet for this long, uh, that's not an accident. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think, you know, now that we are grappling with the underlying allegations, and it was really important to me that the women's stories be at the center of the conversation. So I I also didn't want to distract from that. But I think as we get further and further out, um, you know, it will be important to really take a hard look at ourselves in the media and across our society and 
and look at the systems that keep these sorts of things quiet. How long did you research that the the Weinstein story? Was you said it was the a year? the big first interview was done in January of last year. The first you know research and calls would have happened sort of October November of 2016. Oh wow! Yeah, so about a year. So, your book, <laughs> my book, my long suffering book. We're in a home base. What did you What did you first start writing? By the way, I love that image of you with with war on peace in your lap. I, t- I snapped a picture. I'm Instagramming <laughs> yes. that. It's right here. Uh, how long was the process to? Way too long. Yeah, and you had to be fly around the world a little bit too, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You saw. There's all sorts of crazy exotic locations in there. Um, it took five years, all told, to write this book. And a lot of the actual writing happened at the end. Um, and part of that was because the Weinstein story like took over my life. And right at the moment where I was supposed to be in crunch mode for the book, I was juggling these two giant things. Were your editors understanding, like, okay, uh, no, no, they were not. They actually uh, they dropped the book, and I had to resell it to a wonderful team at Norton, my current publisher. Um, you serious? For a yeah. Oh, they are mad. When did they When did they yeah, drop? People are mad. They're, they're, a lot of people are in regret mood now. Yeah, because right? I need to know when did they drop? Uh, right at the as the Weinstein story was heating up. This would have been like eight, maybe Ooh. April of last year. Yeah. They gonna be salty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's great great people over there, and I'm sure they're doing fine. But uh, it was obviously a huge blow to me personally, and. There are so many brave whistleblowers that, you know, they knew and, and I knew had gone on the record for this book. Um, and I couldn't let them down either because this book is the story of, first of all, transformation in America's role in the world that's really important to all of our safety. And second of all, of brave men and women in an unsung career who are really getting pushed out right now and denigrated and who are profoundly misunderstood and abused by politicians. They're abused by the public because in and a way, public, yeah. it's funny because I was thinking to myself in reading because I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I ran through it and I was like, oh, so now I feel bad about beeping at the guys who get to park anywhere they want to with the diplomat tags. I was like, it just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm born and raised in D.C., so I'm like, why yep. does he get to park yeah, anywhere to he wants to and do what he wants to? But now I get it. I, I'm like, okay. The, you know, these are men and women who turn down opportunities to make a lot more money in the private sector, who... Uh, go to the most dangerous and difficult places on earth at times, move their families around every few years. Uh, and they do it because they know that their work makes the United States safer. safer. Yeah. I mean, they are the first line of defense against dangerous people getting into our country. Uh, they are the people responsible when you get into a crisis or to get taken hostage and you got to get pulled out. And they're the people who hopefully if we empower them, which we are not, mm broker the deals that keep our brave servicemen and women out of conflicts. You know, war should not be the first solution. Well, you you said that people would think that with this current administration that we're, quote, air quote, under, that uh, sort of the, the, the decline of diplo- uh, diplomacy overseas and in other territories, most of us would think that the decline is starting now, but you actually said that it was... This this has been going on like during the Clinton and during the Bush mm-hmm. Bush one and the Reagan administration. So there's two things going on here. A lot of the book is devoted to the crisis under the Trump administration. I mean, this is a crazy new extreme where we are literally purging the State Department, just mass firings, 
hundreds of diplomatic posts empty. Empty, right? Can you say the number? It's like a oh, ridiculous yeah. I number. I mean, it's ch- it changes all the time, so I don't want to give a number now because it'll change by the time we... And sometimes <laughs> it gets worse, not better, by the way. They get rid of more, okay. Yeah, the, but it's... We're talking about, you know, major embassies without an ambassador, major offices around the State Department without an assistant secretary to run that region. And it means that we're flying blind in all sorts of big challenges all around the world. I, I bookend War on Peace with the story of this guy, Tom Countryman, which is his real name, unbelievably. That's, wow. his, that's not his <laughs> nom de plume. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not like a stage name. That's okay. his real name. And, uh, and he is indeed like a, a patriotic guy, you know, served in all these dangerous places for years and years. And he was the top official on arms control at the State Department. And he got fired within days of Trump coming in. And... You think about that, like at a time when we're facing down Iran and North Korea and arms control is one of our biggest challenges, we just gave the boot to our top expert on that field. So a big part of this is the Trump era. But you're right. You know, when people say this is unprecedented, that's not quite the right word because there's a lot of precedent you can look at and draw really clear lessons from. You mentioned the Clinton administration. Clinton, over the course of the 90s, cut spending on development and diplomacy by 30%. And we closed all sorts of embassies around the world. The embassies we had left were short-funded. We shuttered two really important government agencies, one on information, which obviously we could use that skill set as we go up against ISIS propaganda, one on arms control. And, um, you know, these are lasting pieces of damage that we really felt after 9-11 when we needed diplomats more. And instead... Obviously, what we've seen is everything gets run through the Pentagon. Yeah. Your book, it's, it's interesting because, number one, I wanted to big you up because the way you kind of explain things as you go and you learn about the State Department and you learn about everybody's role, but it also becomes very scary as you really realize to dumb it down that we don't have as many friends in these countries as we used to mm-hmm. and when it comes to American representation, which is kind of scary. And then it goes back to the white house who are the only ones really communicating with these outside entities, which is. <laughs> so are you, are, yeah. are you saying that in the case of North Korea, there should have been way more, uh, did we ever have representation in North Korea at all? So, so it, it's not about wanting an embassy there. You know, I think everyone agrees that like it wouldn't be the right thing to recognize them as a state in that way at present until they reform in a whole lot of ways. But what we have had in recent history are really concerted efforts led by really experienced diplomats to have talks with them and other players in the region that can kind of squeeze them and exert pressure like the Chinese. So under George W. Bush, for instance, there were six-party talks led by this guy, Chris Hill, who's a career diplomat who's profiled in this book. Um, And, you know, it's too simple to say that he just failed. You know, they worked really hard around the clock for a long time. They got North Korea to shut down some of its reactors for the first time. They got some concessions and some transparency. In the end, you know, it fell through. North Korea didn't follow through to the extent we wanted. But there were significant inroads made in our ability to talk to China about this. And we've just thrown that all out since then. And, yeah, because Trump said he's the reason he, that we have to, where China is yeah, talking to us. Yeah, and, 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 you know, Trump is trumpeting a lot about <laughs> the... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry for that accidental pun. We I'm so glad you saw it. Um, <laughs> about this, you know, meeting potentially leader to leader in the North Korea crisis. I just got to say, and this is addressed in the book, what all the experts who have been immersed in trying to crack the North Korea problem for years say is 
Time will tell what that means, a meeting like that, because North Korea is really wily. They lie all the time. And there's a real risk that we get played. If you go into a meeting leader to leader, it can be a way to legitimize them as a nuclear power. They can run around saying, hey, now we're recognized and we can have nukes. That's one of their key demands. Um, We don't necessarily have a long-term strategy in which to embed that meeting. And that's a problem because we no longer have a core of experts devoted to North Korea at the State Department. Well, yeah, that, wow, was that was a downer for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how I felt starting. Wah, that's how I felt reading that book. I was like, so this is not going to have a happy ending because well, we're still it's here. It's hopeful, too. There's some hope in this book. I mean, I talk about the fact that there are still these brave men and women doing this work in difficult places around the world. And, and I talk about some of the examples in recent history that suggest that if we support them, you can actually turn things around. So where, are, so where do you think it's, it's important and they are there? Because they've been pulled out okay, of so many places. I have That's, one quick question. Though. Okay. Yeah. All right. I believe that, you know, obviously in the name of pettiness, I believe the Trump administration is just shutting down uh, or firing uh, at will who he pleases. Mm-hmm. What were uh, the, the reasons, or at least between the, the Reagan and the Obama administration? Did you see the decline of uh, diplomacy around the world? Like, what were what were the reasons of? Were they saying that okay, this particular place in uh, Zambia or or this African uh, nation, we don't need you know five diplomats there? So I, I'm careful not to oversimplify the problem. Uh, the State Department bureaucracy is slow moving. It's broken and outdated in a lot of ways, and. You know, part of this conversation is people saying, well, we need to cut back because we need to reform. Mm. And I think that that's not unreasonable. You know, intelligent reform, where we reshape what our diplomacy looks like, is a great idea. But, but there's no plan. Is there a yeah, plan there's somewhere? No, there's no plan. Oh, okay. They are cutting well, muscle, the, not fat. What's the idea plan? Well, you know, the example I would point to is, since you were asking about history, you know, during World War II, I went back and found a lot of the old headlines covering the State Department then, and they sound a whole lot like headlines about the Rex Tillerson State Department in the past year. Oh, wow. People saying, we've got a broken State Department, uh, you know, it's not doing its job, you know, we need to throw it out the window, we need to reform it. And what's interesting is what we did then, which is, instead of throwing it out, we really reshaped it for a modern era. You know, mass communication was on the rise. We created all sorts of new offices and new priorities. We, we cut older offices that were now outdated. And, and you ended up with a period where we had the creation of you know, NATO and the UN and the World Bank and all of these structures we still rely on. So I think you can reform it if Not you want to. Not in this administration, though. <laughs> well, like, this administration doesn't seem to want to. This is what I'm yeah. saying. It's going to be empty positions, just yeah. emptiness. Yeah. I'm curious to get your take on uh, what you think the role of technology plays in kind of our decline of diplomacy just because mm-hmm. this is the first time i think we're just living in an era where information and misinformation just flies so fast you know what i mean and so i'm curious to, what do you think like you know when you were talking about you know like 40 what hell not even 40 years ago like during the like bush one mm-hmm. i mean there was no twitter there was no social media so now stories can break and you know, it may be all the way sourced, it may be whatever, but it can just go so <laughs> off the rails. What do you think the role that social media has played 
either mm-hmm. good or bad, like in the role of all that? It's a really good question, and it's something I talk about a lot in the book. The the rise of you know instant communication technology has profoundly affected the the role of diplomats, right? You don't need an ambassador in a foreign land to deliver a message anymore. Like that that cool kind of magical responsibility that they once had of here is a, a letter from the United <laughs> States isn't how it works anymore. And I think that that's part of what allows some of this destructive political rhetoric where there's just the constant denigration of diplomats as, you know, dusty bureaucrats who don't get anything done, which I think is really unfair and shortchanges the important work they do. The fact that we don't need letters delivered in person anymore doesn't mean that we don't need experts who understand the most complicated (laughs) crises on earth and know how to get American citizens out and protect their interests and cut deals that advance our influence. So if we are lacking or if we're declining, and I don't know how sharp that decline is, I think I know the answer, but who is picking up the the slack and who is slow to win? Who's on point right now as far as... I'm glad you asked that because one of the kind of the like shadow that is cast over this whole story in the book is that China is doing the opposite thing right now. And, you know, I don't mean to hold up China as some paragon of virtue. I think it's pretty (laughs) troubling if China is filling this space. But the fact is... Is Yes. I mean, I think there there are pros and cons to Chinese leadership, and it varies around the world. But certainly, I do think the United States, despite all of our flaws, is still a more sincere and ardent defender of human rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, I do think that we want American influence, um, you know, in large part, despite all the ways in which we screw up and can be a malign influence. I think it is a good thing for the world if we are running things correctly. And what we're seeing right now is in important places around the world, China is investing in more and more diplomats. And I'll give you an example. You know, I, I was in Sudan for a while and in Sudan, China for a long time played the role that we kind of stereotypically think of China as playing, which, where they're this interloper that is totally callous about human rights and they're extracting the oil and like aiding and abetting a genocide. And I wrote about that a lot at the time. Now China has like a regional envoy who's doing shuttle diplomacy trying to like cut a peace deal there. So they have a Why? whole, yeah, they, because they, they want to ascend to a, a status of global leadership. And there are kids all around the world growing up with really clear signs of Chinese leadership and development, big infrastructure projects in places where we no longer even have embassies. Wow. Yeah. Shit. Yeah, that's kind of my reaction, <laughs> yeah, too. Uh, better start learning Mandarin. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Let's, we got to do our roll call in Mandarin next time. <laughs> All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me ask, let me ask you, you know, I'll, I'll say that at least... Okay, I, I, you know, I still watch Mad All Show, and it's sort of kind of like my my lullaby. Like I gotta mm-hmm. see what you know, just so I can sleep at night. She's am, great. She's so am, principled. Am I? Am I? Am I? Is is 2018 a pipe dream? Is it? Well, in terms of impeachment, mid, it, no. In terms of midterms, mm. the idea of like, do you? Do you Oh, man, I'm not going to handicap that race. All I can say is I'm going to keep on telling stories that I hope are relevant to voters as they make informed decisions. And, you know, I've been exposing some of these secret election season payments um, in my latest round of New Yorker stories. And um, I think there's a lot to uncover here about the abuse of power and how powerful people can distort people's perceptions during an election. And it's not my job to... Uh, project whether that has any impact or to hope that it has an impact. Are you say, speaking you, of the Facebook situation or the... Uh, that That's part of the whole soup of things that happened, but the, the last few stories I did were about secret payments the to... National Enquirer Right, story. to silence right. Yeah. stories. This, yeah. this practice of catch and kill, um, where there were you know stories that um, might have seen the light of day and didn't uh, because of transactions that were covered up at the time, seemingly on behalf of the president. But it's obvious that people... Uh, you know, he wants to make that statement like I could stand on Fifth Avenue, shoot somebody, shoot somebody <laughs> and nothing would happen to me. And I'm almost thinking like, oh, he's absolutely right. Like his believers are going to believe what they believe. That's what I was thinking. But in a case, but but then there's a case of like, 
Shania Twain's statement last week. Yeah, when she was like, where she said that you know, as a Canadian, and I know, like, there's, there's the people that scare me the most. She I mean, said they, she'd vote for Trump, Trump if she could. Yeah. yeah, because she felt he told the truth. But Shania, here's the, yeah, here's the you're thing. like that. Don't impress yeah. me. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, what? <laughs> Still the one I stole. <laughs> but the thing is, is that. I believe that if she truly saw what was happening and was she informed, she would know better. But the problem is, you guys is that have to get Shania no, on here and have her that out conversation. Like that, Amir. You're giving no, no, her no, no, a no. lifeline. Oh, I'm not capable for Shania whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> but this is the person that I know. Like I keep my television on 24 seven, mm-hmm. watching news. Mm-hmm. Now, this is subsequently also bringing down my spirit mm-hmm. as a human being. Am I being less productive? Because I got to keep, I got to figure out, even when I bust in Zara's office, who's not speaking at all right now, <laughs> she can match you note for note. I know. Do we get one sound bite by the end? She literally, like. I, I wanted you to ask about Mike Pompeo. Okay. Okay. okay hey, but Zara. why don't you ask about yeah, Mike Pompeo? Yeah. What, what do you want to know? Zara, don't... what about Mike Pompeo? Yeah, I was just know. wondering if you think things are going to get better if he gets in there. So I, I would say two things. One is, here's what we know about Mike Pompeo's record in terms of his position on the issues. Uh, you know, he's extremely hawkish. Uh, he has been right there with the president, saber rattling about dismantling the Iran deal and stepping away from uh, a diplomatic approach. Uh, you know, the president sent him... <laughs> Uh, right after firing Rex Tillerson to meet with the North Koreans, um, you know, while he was CIA director. So he's already been sort of part of this moment where we're seeing the work of diplomats outsourced to soldiers and spies. That said, I've continued to talk to all these whistleblowers whose stories are in War on Peace and hope really springs eternal with them you know they you see mentioned in there that this is not a this is not a, yeah. a first time thing because colin they made the mistake i think the clinton right the clinton administration made the mistake with colin powell and they said that they made a mistake with replacing diplomacy with i think military. multiple administrations realized they made a mistake on this you know late in the game the clinton administration after his first secretary of state warren christopher sounded a whole lot like rex tillerson defending these deep cuts to the department Madeleine Albright came in and was much more focused on large-scale diplomacy. During the Bush administration, uh, you know, after the disasters of Iraq, Condoleezza Rice is on the record in this book talking about, you know, needing more diplomacy. And, And that's the period in which they took this run at the North Korea problem. And I talk about that as well. Um, often this realization comes too late. There are senior Obama administration officials saying, you know, we, we kind of expressing regret about the fact that they had an Afghanistan policy that was really overtaken by celebrity generals and how they tried to course correct and get more diplomatic views in the room later on. And you wound up with the Iran deal, the thaw in relations with Cuba, um, the Paris Climate Change Accord. So if you invest in diplomacy, you can get results. You just have to have leadership. And, you know, to circle it back to Mike Pompeo, I think there's a lot of hope right now about him. There's a lot of sincere hope that he will invest in diplomacy and defend that institution and believe in the brave men and women working there, which we haven't seen so far in this administration. What's going to be the final Jenga cube that you pull that everything's going to crumble down? (laughs) Oh, man. Do you feel the pressure? Because I I don't want to put that on you, but I feel like 
I'm sure you have. You did it before. Guess. You can do it again. <laughs> like one of you is going to get that all the the president's men oh, like yeah, yeah. movie, like. Not I, that that should be your motivation. Yeah, I thought it was going to be Stormy Daniels. It's for a not bit my. Longer. It's not my job to you know try to bring down anyone. It wasn't even my job to try to bring down Harvey Weinstein. My job was to make those survivors feel heard which they hadn't been for a long time. And I think similarly with the reporting I've done on the Trump administration and even the stories I tell in this book, you know, my job is to get as close to the truth as possible and to pull back the curtain on stuff that people haven't wanted you to see. How how can you... Okay, so doubling back to... Because I realized I didn't, I didn't clear myself up with Shania. So you can <laughs> cross your arms. You guys have beef right now about Shania. I do but listen, my point was that I feel as though there are people who... Their whole thing is I I I just can't I can't watch the news it 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 kills me inside and I understand you know it's so overwhelming to deal with your life and then to see what's happening in life there but it's like I just I'm one of those people that has to keep an eye even though I'm not totally immersed in it and you know I'm yeah I'm, but you care yeah and I, I don't feel as though people don't care but I do feel that there are a set of people. That because it won't affect them easily as it will others, you know, like mm -hmm. I have friends and family that are already affected by the, the, the DACA situation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that shit affects me. But how do you reach people that are indifferent to watching the news that, you know, if I can get through a day where I don't have to explain to someone and filter it and explain in their language that they understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I go in Zara's room like, all right, what I, that hour where I'm shooting Fallon, six o'clock, usually my first thing is, all right, what happened? You know, <laughs> and based on her face, some days she's crying because some shit happened or, <laughs> you know, it's... All the news. How how do you... How do, new, how do journalists get their groove back where, you know where you're counterattacking propaganda television like Fox. Can I call them that? I think that's Is there one person at Fox fair. you respect? Yeah, I, there are there are individual people at Fox I respect, but I, I do think that um Who are they? <laughs> who's, like, who's the two people that uh, like know I, the truth? I, you know, look, I, I think Shep Smith does fairly straight coverage. I actually like uh, Shep. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, he's okay. And I think there are people like uh, you know, I don't want to endorse everything each of these people does wholesale, but like Brett Baer does some sort of more, I think, you know, on the straight and narrow news kind of stuff. But okay. but yes, I, I think overall, um, you know, that is an organization um, with some very clear ties to the people they're covering, and um, how come the, they do a lot of damage this, to the conversation? I do, I do think that. But how come the world just can't? Not the world or Americans can't see that. Well, so so to your first point, I, I think you've highlighted one of the most important and difficult challenges we have as a, as a society um, and as reporters, too. Apathy is, in a lot of ways, the enemy of progress. And it, it's one of the toughest nuts to crack. I totally get with, get and empathize with 
the fact that people despair when they watch the news and they just want to turn away. It's overwhelming too. This people is, get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that the mainstream media deserves some blame for the way the 24-hour news 24 cycle. Hour, yeah. It never goes off. And yeah. You, ha- you have to turn it off. Like you have to set your right. own filter of it's, like It's alienated and people. And it's the same story sometimes. Not the same stories, but yes, yes. the same stories. So I think we're we're part of the problem is systemic where there is a broken news system um, where the business model is built around rereading, rereading the same headline over and over again and not offering anything new to the conversation mm-hmm. or doing the other thing that's cheap and easy, which is put people in a room and have them shout at each other. Yeah, just talking to it. So. All of which I think has conspired to make people tune out. And that's really dangerous because we need people who, like all of you sitting here, really profoundly care and are going to be engaged and cry if the news cycle dictates that and <laughs> want to stand up and do something. We all need that. And so, you know, I hope in the small part that I do to tell stories, I'm doing it in a way where um, people know it's not part of just hammering them over the head with the same old headlines. It's not part of the, the partisan echo chamber um, you know, it's really giving them some facts that maybe they can be armed with as they make decisions. Have Has anyone approached you yet uh, about doing movies about any of your stuff, like either War and Peace or your Weinstein stuff? Because I think that's going to be, when, when you talk about just, how you reach people. Yeah, getting over the avenue. Because I'm yeah, one of those Oliver people. Stone style. Yo, I'm straight up like, yo, all the Trump stuff. I'm just like, yo, just I'm just waiting for Jerry Bruckheimer to make the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I will know everything. Well, yeah, who's your, who's your casting everything. choice? Yeah. Yeah. Who do you cast? Who you cast for Trump? Ooh. Alec Baldwin. <laughs> That's just keep the party going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, man. Like I'm just waiting because it's just so much information, and you don't know what's what, what's a lie, what's true. So I would probably fall into one of the categories. I'm not just totally apathetic. You know, I I stay up to some degree, but certainly it's a point where you kind of have to shut down. I was like, look. I got kids to raise. I got to do my thing. So I can't be inundated with Mm -hmm. it all the time. But I was curious if anyone has, because all this stuff, I mean, just the past couple years of your life is prime (laughs) ready for. There's some crazy stories there. Look, I have a lot of respect for storytelling in different mediums and the power to expand people's horizons with those stories. If you can't, if you can't give it up, I mean, I get, don't, don't fuck up the bag. I I think think you're right. I think that, you know, these stories uh, can reach different audiences. If you, if you tell them right, whether it's in, you know, a, a careful piece of investigative reporting or a movie, or a book, or a song. I mean, there's a lot of ways to to move people and help them understand important issues we all grapple with. Yeah, because I, I, I thought about you before I did. Right. No, for real. No, because before, like, before we, um, in kind of my prepping for this, I watched the, the Paternal. Have you watched the joint on HBO, the Paternal? Oh, movie? I haven't. Is it good? Yeah, it, it is good. It is good. But it's more so about, like, the investigation and how... I should I should be watching that as an HBO guy. I've got I've got an HBO deal starting soon, so I'll oh, you'll be breaking news, breaking news, breaking news, exclusive. So crazy right now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think you. No, he deserves it. I got a sample. Yes, yes. You, got one. you got one. You got one. Uh, yeah, so I'll be, you know, I'll be turning some of these stories into documentaries, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll be back on TV. And uh, I, I think part of that is because you're right. There's there's different ways to get to people, and and they're all important. Is there something bubbling under that you're working on? Yes. 
Yo, you said you that. You knew that was so going to be <laughs> <laughs> like, Wait, you're like, nope, done. Like, like, I even heard the exclamation point at the yeah, end yeah, of the S. <laughs> 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 okay, so when you have a scoop that you know that you have, mm-hmm. uh, who's your trusted circle? Who is your... Because I don't, don't, you know, and I don't know the the doggy dog world of of journalism or whatnot, but when you know you have some shit that no one else has. So I write for The New Yorker, and I am really happy to say that after all of the challenges of the past year, you know, I landed in a place where there's just some of the best damn journalists on earth supporting me. And uh, David Remnick, who runs The New Yorker, who you guys should totally have on. I want to hear him in a roll call. He's a damn (laughs) hero. That guy is cool as hell and rescued the Weinstein story and stood by it when it was under attack. And, uh, you know, as I work on upcoming stories, I got a great circle of editors that are circle of trust there and, and fact checkers as we get closer to the finish line on each story. And um, it's, a, it's a wonderful institution. Wow. People should subscribe. I mean, can you keep it real? How real are the... You know I always keep it real. But how real are the threats? Like, is it barbershop talk or is it some... Real, yeah, no, it's shit. it's some it's some real shit, unfortunately. But I mean, like, because you, you even like, moved out, you, right? You moved. You, I did. I did move out of my place like at the end. Not, I mean, you know. This so is when you're in a parking so. lot alone, is it like over the shoulder? Is it? Yeah, I mean, it it it, it comes and goes. Uh, you know, I, I think there are periods where I'm working on a specific story where it gets very very adversarial, where um, that is very much the vibe of like. Okay, am I being followed? What precautions do I need to take? Because um, that National Enquirer, that was a big deal. Like, I mean, if Stormy's looking over her shoulder, yeah. you're definitely looking over yours when you say it's love child. But almost and there, like, and there was a story were... in the in the New York Times last night about some of the connections between those allegations of intimidation and you know people that were getting hired, and um, this is all stuff that will continue to come to light. But yeah, the answer is it's it's real. Well, I'm just saying that in the '60s, uh, they handled it. Yeah, yeah. A certain yeah. way. <laughs> uh, whereas I feel as though because there's cameras everywhere, it's hard to execute that sort of, you know. I hope you're I gotta right. call a friend. I mean, I, I hope you're right that it's harder for people to, uh, you know, attack other people because of the surveillance. Yeah, well. <laughs> Plus, this ain't House of Cards for real. Like, Ronan, can't anybody just, I just can't see. No, yeah, I think it is it House is. of Cards for real. It, it is. It's, yeah. I, I will say, yeah. you know, without talking about the specifics of stuff I've reported on, I, in general terms, I have been startled at how close it is to fiction and, and how, you know, kind of cloak and dagger tactics that I didn't think existed in the real world really are part of the tool set deployed by powerful people when they're right. on a rampage trying to stop something from coming out. But almost the thing that I'm, I marvel at the most is that... The, I don't think that this current administration is a, truly aware of the power of how technology works. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like they're so old school, 70s, 80s, old school, uh, you know, just keep it between us. Not knowing that <laughs> we're going to find out the information anyway. Like, I mean, it's this weird dichotomy, right? Because Trump is also like the king of Twitter and like late night tweets right. and early morning tweets and right. tweets with typos. And so, <laughs> but, I mean, it's just so points. obvious that he comes from the school of if you say something uh, enough, enough they'll believe it. They'll yeah. believe it. Like I, I can, yeah, I can, I can sure. tell you know a whitewash uh, when 
it's it's so obvious and transparent. Yeah. That I guess this leads me to my last question, which is do you have hope for 2018? And if you do, uh what do you project we'll have? I guess to the extent that I engage with electoral politics at all, it's just wanting to tell stories that arm people with as much useful and accurate information as possible. You know, I truly, that's not a cop-out. I just, I don't think in those terms. I really just think in terms of what's the most important story I can go after. And I hope, I think that telling the truth is good for society as a whole. And I hope that that is also helpful for the electorate. It's funny. So you're not going on record with... He's not, you no. think he that said it's going to change it? It's not no. the world I'm in, you know? I'm, I'm not in, in that world tell of the politics. Truth as it yeah. goes. I gotta play it, man. <laughs> <laughs> but wait. Fair enough, I heard that. But what's funny is you mentioned Madeline Albright, and I was also thinking about, what do you think about Madeline Albright and people like James Comey, like writing these books? I mean, in the mm-hmm. season of mm-hmm. War and Peace, come, your book coming out as yeah, well. Yeah, Madeline like, Albright is in, is in my yeah, book, you mentioned, too. She exactly. was wonderfully candid, um, you know, and has a great uh, history of, of public service, and is obviously very frank, both in War on Peace and, and her own book, Fascism, um, a warning, it's subtitled. Uh, and, you know, she's also, she's a, you know, uh, I don't say this in a disparaging way, but a, a partisan, so she can talk more freely about... So then James Comey... Well, James Comey, it's much more, I mean, you know, obviously he's like dodging and weaving bullets and it's a whole careful process anytime you have a government agency reviewing your book and... Um, yeah, I think it was almost inevitable that it was going to be a minefield for him to do a press tour for that book. So the wrong time. I don't know. I don't know. I, it's not for me to say. I honestly, I, I also haven't read the book, so I wouldn't want to say it's the wrong time for it to come out. Maybe it's the right time. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I think he's deftly trying to navigate those potholes, maybe. You, oh, you, wow, you are super disapproving. No, 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 <laughs> James no. I'm, She's got this look on her face like, mm-mm. No, no, I'm, cl- I'm, I'm happy that he came out, but again, it kind of goes back to what Amir said. At the end of the day, like, no matter who comes out, there's a certain population, a certain people that... They're going to pick their they, own facts. They don't see it. They oh, just, yeah, for, for there's sure. There's something wrong with him. They'll it's, believe whoever is wearing a tie says it's true. Because, yeah, I was all hyped about the book, but then I realized I'm like, I'm hyped with the same people again. Well, this is one, <laughs> this is one of the problems that we have to deal with in terms of the media landscape where the president uh, was clearly uh, able to exploit, um, you know, both through these catch-and-kill operations via the Inquirer and also the general co-opting of a tabloid media outlet that runs constant headlines that are, you know, pro-Trump and anti-Hillary Clinton. Amazing. Well, because it interfaces with that audience that you're talking about that's not necessarily part of the conversations you're in, but they are seeing those magazine covers on the checkout line. So there's an interesting, you know, I'm not a media reporter, but there's an interesting media narrative here, which is this split nation of we're all in our own partisan bubbles. We go on Facebook and Twitter, and it's algorithmically curated, so you only see views you agree with. Yeah. It's an echo and then, Right, and then for the people who don't watch the news, you know, there's this whole other parallel reality of National Enquirer covers and the checkout line at the supermarket, and none of these groups are talking to each other. And that's a real problem. That's, you know, bigger than anything I am able to solve that's, right now. That's weird to me that National Enquirer is still... A thing. Like, oh my God! Yes, bad. I mean it's not it's in legacy. terms of the media conversation, but it is in terms of the grocery yeah, store. Like kinda the grocery not the store, the yeah, like right. lowest common I, I denominator. Like I'm not saying I haven't been. I've been to a grocery store a few times, but 
Oh, shit. <laughs> Motherfucker, they don't have it at Whole Foods. I'm just saying. No, <laughs> she's trying to give me stop that. Stop now. Stop now. She's trying to give me that, that like, stop you know, stop now, stop now. You didn't even like, say Trader Joe's. I can't. The, the people at Whole Foods are, are the people in your conversation. They're not the people who need convincing. <laughs> right. That's Again, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Some of the people are, I don't watch the news. Like, I work with a lot of, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's almost dangerous on the Whole Foods side of things because, again, I know and I work with a lot of people who, you know, they can afford to turn the other way uh, and not look. Uh, you know, and this, that disappoints me. Yeah. That when I, that hurts me more. Yeah, nothing like a I rich agree. liberal. Ain't nothing like it. Yeah. So. I hope everyone with the power to raise their voice is doing so in an informed way. That's all. I, this is the apathy that we've been hitting on again and again is a really dangerous and disappointing thing. People got to care. Yeah. And you made us, uh, not to go back to the book, but War and Peace made us care about diplomacy because, again, I wasn't even thinking about Thank it. Thank you. I hope so. I think the brave men and women doing this work uh, deserve that. That's great. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you. I appreciate you for coming. See you guys soon. Yo, can we do do the whole, the whole title is War on Peace, The End of Diplomacy and the Decline of the American Influence. Powwow. Ah, those are heavy words, ladies and gentlemen. I know, All it's right. scary. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Sugar Steve, Zara Zalman, <laughs> a fake bill, a fake bill, and Fontigolo. Don't say Boss Bill too, because he thinks and he, he it's always, like, yeah. he always say we forget about and him. Boss Bill. Of course, we can we deal with this. His collection of green tea Kit Kats is oh, nasty as hell. The worst. Uh, sorry. sorry, Kit Kat, that was a bad idea. Anyway, this is Questlove. You were listening to Questlove Supreme, and be safe, everybody. Thank you. See you on the next one. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steel, is every Thursday a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.